there is a class of political elites in this world who really do leave regular people behind and we need to do better around who we're speaking for and passing the mic to different people and elevating them in the work that we do and the work that we campaign, which is just longer, deeper work, but we've got to do it because it's it kind of feels like we need to save our democracy in a bunch of ways. Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Larissa Baldwin-Roberts, is the executive director of the large and influential Australian political online progressive group GetUp, their analog to Meetup. Larissa is a lifetime organizer and was previously co-founder of Seed. She's also a First Nations woman. Larissa has a good story about where her values come from and how she brought them to GetUp. We also spoke about how what happens in the U.S. affects Australia and vice versa, and our common problems with the right wing and Rupert Murdoch media. Larissa is a great guest. You should listen. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Larissa Baldwin-Roberts of GetUp. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Larissa, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Hey, so my name's Larissa Baldwin-Roberts. I'm a Wijibal Waiba woman from the Bundjalung Nations, a First Nations woman living here in Mianjin, also called Brisbane. And I'm the CEO of GetUp. It's the largest political organisation in Australia, but we're not a political party. And so we campaign with over a million members on issues that they care about. So we've been spending a lot of time protecting country, looking at climate change, looking at our social safety nets and how we expand those. We have campaigns running to protect whistleblowers. So we campaign on on multiple different issues. You came to my attention when I interviewed a professor who had a book about transnational advocacy in this era online. We have a group in the United States called Move On that she thinks is analogous in a lot of ways to get up. Yes, it's a sister organization of get up. Yeah. Yeah. And so I thought it would be interesting to just hear your perspective on your own activism and on Australian politics and maybe a little bit about how you see what's going on over here from afar, which has got to be a little bit alarming from time to time. You mentioned a little bit about where you grew up, but it didn't mean that much to me. Tell me a little bit about the area and the kind of family and kind of your heritage in activism which I know goes back a ways. Yeah, so I grew up on country, so I'm a Wijibal Waiba woman, so northern New South Wales, that's our country, and my family's lived there since time immemorial as First Nations people, but 
My family, for a long time, have had a history of activism. We have a lot of policies, very harmful policies, are of segregation, genocide, and those types of things happening in Australia. So a lot of people don't know about Aboriginal history and the activism that took part there. But for a lot of times, it was like Aboriginal Protection Acts. My family wound up onto a reserve called Cabbage Tree originally, and there was a lot of violence from the police. The police officers were basically the police protectors of Aboriginal people. And they walked off from that community reserve and they walked onto country in a, into a place called Kabui, which in our language means a place of full and plenty. It was an, what we called back then an Aboriginal controlled mission. And so it meant that there weren't any kind of rations. They weren't allowed to leave the reserve without documents from the police. If they were outside of court without a document or approval to be off country, they would be locked in jail. And so, you know, I look back at photos and that sort of stuff back then and, like, they lived in tin shacks at that time. Like, the Lismore City Council put a big congregated iron fence around so it would remove the eyesore of the Aboriginal people that were living there, tin shacks with dirt floors. And so that's where my, my dad grew up. And as a young man, when he turned 10 years old, he came home and his grandfathers had moved his bedding into their place and, you know, he did his cultural education. We just learned sorts of, so much of the stories where they'd take him out when he was like five years old and, and like leave him kilometres away from the reserve and make him make his way back home and stuff like that. But heard lots of stories about how they grew up and it was hard and my dad left school really early, what is equivalent to I think like your elementary school, he did that and then they had to work for rations, him and his brothers, because their dad had passed away. So it was tough growing up. But one of my older grandfathers was also, for a lot of Aboriginal people back then, they saw a lot of complementary between Christianity and spirituality, like Aboriginal culture. His father was a minister back in the 30s and they started to have congregations and that sort of stuff on the mission. And there would be non-Indigenous people there and, and talk about equality and land rights. And so throughout those decades and then with the civil rights movement in the US, they were very active in trying to hold, I guess, the broader Australian population who were watching the civil rights movement in the US and saying, hey, we have segregation here. What are you talking about? Like this is completely hypocritical the way that you're treating us. We're not even counted as people in this country. How do you think the country's doing with respect to your people now? There's a long way to go, but we had a very significant announcement. So our prime minister came out and announced that we would go to a referendum. It's significant. We'll go to a referendum on a voice to parliament, which is a new kind of democratic institution that would be protected by the constitution. Governments wouldn't be able to get rid of it. It only has the power to kind of give advice. It can do kind of high court challenges. We've seen things like the Northern Territory intervention over the last 15 years where a conservative government came in and told insane stories about child sex offences and, and pedophiles within our communities and, and drugs and alcohol. And within the Northern Territory, they suspended the Racial Discrimination Act and rolled out the army into communities. This is just 15 years ago. And so we have really gone, I would say, backwards in our relations since then you know, we still are really influenced by what is happening in the US and with the Black Lives Matter protests, the forced closures, there were like a lot of remote communities in Australia. And our land tenure is very different here. So I know that there are treaties and reservations and that sort of stuff in the US. I've traveled to a bunch of them, but here, like we have Aboriginal land rights. Some of this land is seen legally by our high court as ours and native title rights, but 
they get overwritten and those legislations really get white entered by mining corporations, big mining corporations. Australia is mineral rich and a lot of that, over 60% of mines in this country are very close to Aboriginal communities. So it is our land that they are mining, but we don't receive royalties from it. So we've seen a decade of really big protest as well around the rights of First Nations people. So I don't think that they've come out and said, oh, here's this thing because we're great people. It's because there's been protests and I think shining a light on the system and life expectancy is absolutely going backwards in our communities. We are 3% of the population, but we make up the majority of the prison population in Australia. So there are lots of things that our communities deal with. There's a long way to go, but we are also in a space right now because of the protest movements where you have state and territory and federal governments talking about treaties and talking about truth-telling processes, which I think is really important. I'm curious about your own education. What was that like and what did you study as you went through college and so on? So I dropped out of high school early. My brother was really sick and my mum had moved away, so I was living in youth housing. But for me growing up, really in the work that I did, the formal education, I guess, for the work that I did, is my family are activists. And so I got dragged along when I was like a teenager, like 16 years old, into community meetings, traveling throughout remote Aboriginal communities in New South Wales. And I got dragged along because I could use a computer and my aunties and uncles, you know, they didn't finish primary school. And so it was like, Ruth, you're coming, you got to take some notes and then send them to governments. And that was really, for me, one, an understanding of how intersectional racism and all of the health issues, because they managed to start the Nyundi Aboriginal Health Council. But also, you know, I, I went into communities where people were dealing with police fines for being unlicensed because they were driving people into city centres. So we would say remote Aboriginal communities and we deem them remote but from their distance from essential services like hospitals, even city councils and stuff like that. So really poor sanitation and those types of things in the community. And we would meet people who, yeah, multiple members of family were being put on remand because they were being pulled over by police because they didn't have licences because they were taking people in to have dialysis or have different heart checks and stuff like that. And so I was really young when I kind of understood different systemic oppressions, but also I knew all my aunties and uncles, like I knew they weren't educated, but I, I had an awakening of like actually all of our community services that we had were put together by our aunties and uncles, which is amazing, right? So for me, I was like, I want to work with them. I did at uni like health science and media and communication because I wanted to get involved in public policy, but really inside government is not the place for me growing up as an activist. But I feel like I was really put on my own path to activism in kind of the early 2000s when we had Palm Island off Queensland as an Aboriginal community where Mulroney Dumaji was murdered and there were massive rights in the communities. He swore a police officer, he was taken into the watch house there and murdered and beaten to death. Then the community rioted because they're like, he didn't do anything. We know that he was just arrested for nothing. They weren't getting any answers. And you had all these police planes and riot gear and that sort of stuff flying into this tiny Aboriginal community. And there was this police officer who murdered him in the months after it. And there was this whole huge meeting of the Queensland police force, like hundreds and hundreds of police officers saying that, and they're getting people to stand up in, in the vision that was on the news and saying, if he gets investigated for this murder, if he gets investigated, because at this point no police officer had ever been investigated for a murder of an Aboriginal person, then we will strike. And I was just like, this is insane that they can do this when they clearly 
murdered this man and everyone can see it. And for me, that was like such a striking point of injustice that I was like, actually, I think that I want to get involved in, well, I was protesting at the time, but, you know, I think this is really unjust and I think we have to say something. So when you came out of college, what were the first couple jobs that you did? I was like working full time as I was doing uni. I was working for an Aboriginal organization called Stronger Smarter and really looking at how do we change our education systems. There were so many passionate people, like lots of Aboriginal principals and teachers that started this organization to try and get the government and the system to change in order to embed our communities and culture within schooling systems and understand that historically, Schools have been the places that have removed our children and our families don't have education, so they don't value this thing and they kind of see it as a big brother watch on on the way that we are looking after our children. And so I got pulled into it because one of the people that was recruiting for them knew that I had done a lot of work in community around doing the community consultations and that sort of stuff. And they were like, hey, Reese, like, there's this organisation. They really want to build relationships with the communities, their organisation and the schooling system it seems like a perfect job for you. And so I did that around the country and I went out into communities and talked about how do we reset the relationships with schools. They had a lot of historic complaints about the things that schools had done to them. So it's like a mediation organising role. And so for me, just moved from that, you know, I was really cared about climate change, but getting involved in the youth movements around climate, I thought that would be the place for me really. But it was just a very white space and the way that I learned about climate change and cared about it as a teenager was just understanding the way that temperature variants would happen across this country and you know I traveled the country with my dad when I was much younger my family even as a teenager learning about in school that it would mean the forced removal of First Nations people from land because people can't live in these temperatures and without water and so I was like this is something that we have to do people need to understand that if we don't do anything about climate change our mob are going to be forced off country. And so that was really, for me, one of the things that I tried to get involved with in the climate movement and it just wasn't a place for us. In, in a lot of ways, they cared about biodiversity, not saying that I don't, but biodiversity, Western science, even in the conservation movement, they really believe in, in ideas of like land without people and their conservation values are very different to what Indigenous people believe globally. And so we just set about, I guess, starting our own space. And so we, we started an organization, me and Millie Telford, she's another Bundjalung woman called Seed. Seed is was a metaphor for kind of our role, how cyclical it is to look after country. And so we started this platform for young people and ended up getting hundreds of Indigenous people involved, uh, young people across the country involved, talking about, you know, climate change, but how land rights and land back is a solution to the climate crisis as well. It's not a easy task to start up a new organization. It's a lot of work. I think it requires a lot of entrepreneurship, a lot of organizing, that sort of thing, depending on what you're doing. Tell me what you learned from trying to put together your own enterprise. We weren't so much. And also, I think we were so set on starting this thing and, and so caught in the value that this thing had to exist. Otherwise, how are we going to solve the climate crisis? It was an incredible amount of work setting up that organisation. But also I really love the way that we got young people involved from the beginning. There was kind of me and Millie behind the scenes doing a lot of work, bringing in funding and trying to recruit people and stuff like that. So we were learning as we were doing it. And I think in the way that we wanted to set the organisation, we had a, 
an idea of like how we wanted to set up based on the land rights movement that existed before, what were the kind of values that we had culturally around how we bring people together and how we create spokes. And so the idea of a collective space that was authorising for young people to get involved in their communities, this was at the forefront of what we wanted to do. And it it sounds incredible when you look back and and say, well, we've created that space, but it took a lot. I think I got like a much thicker skin of like, I think in in the beginning when we were in the climate and environment movement, like we were really pushing up against them for them to make space for us. And, you know, we had people in massive ENGOs in Australia saying to funders not to fund us because we would be a bunch of troublemakers in the movement and create too much disruption. And so we did, but it's just <laughs> incredible that they were out there saying those things. But we took them at the time as like, well, we kind of took it as extra energy, right, to get this thing up and, and going. But I think we built a lot of space. We stopped focusing on the climate environment movement and actually looked into our own communities and their support and built a national organisation it's still running and looking at our funding models, not wanting to go after the same funding that funds a climate and environment movement or even philanthropy that was involved in Indigenous disadvantage. We didn't want any of that because we wanted people to take kind of a strength-based approach to who we were. And so we went after, you know, learning about small donations and how this thing works and how we could have a sustainable model and, and those types of things. And it's been incredible to the point where we have Indigenous people globally like, how did you build that thing? And we've done so much talk to First Nations people in Turtle Island, across the Pacific, making sure that they have can set up their own spaces because there was so much conversation within that decade of starting the organisation. It's about 10 years old now. First Nations people were really tokenised by the movement as well when, in fact, we Indigenous peoples globally protect like 90% of the world's biodiversity. You cannot do climate adaptation without First Nations people. So creating our own space and our own brand and having our own talking points. When we did our science education work around climate, we totally changed it. We want to move away from a Western white science or academic because this is not how our communities talk and move into a space about protecting country and country being central to what we talk about because that is holistic in the way that we view it culturally. It moved us from being students in a room for First Nations people to being actually the leaders in the room. When you talk about protecting country, our communities really step forward because we know how to do this. Land management is an incredible part of our culture. When I've talked to activists who've built their own organizations, I think that it changes something about you, the empowerment that you get from building something like that, from the interactions you get, from the experience with leadership, all of the characteristics of the responsibility and the interaction with the world and trying to make change and having some positive feedback from that. How did it change you starting and running Seed? I think it made me a more resilient person. There's a lot of like really a lot of critique from we would say like the more environmental climate movement but also it I think not just resilient it made me really brave to kind of talk about the ideas that I had on a national scale I feel like I've always and I still do this now even though I'm the leader at another organization really seeing myself as someone who's part of a movement in the way that we set it up we didn't want it to be like a leadership program it feels like there's lots of those things that people throw money behind for indigenous youth And you kind of like the idea of exceptionalism, like these are really great people, you know, they're really good academically. We just wanted a place where young people could just be part of and just express who they were. And I think what your core values are 
you know, a lot of that core value came from my core values, but also getting the right people around the organization that were actually champions of us and champions of the organization. So many elders and just stalwarts of the land rights movement were really like backing us in and just being like, nah, stuff them. Like, don't listen to them. Do this thing. You're doing good work. And so I really created this resilience of kind of going where the energy was. And if people didn't want to work with us, then they didn't want to work with us. That was fine. But I feel like in my leadership, the way that I learned to, I guess, articulate where we're at, learning that it's okay to be really angry in these spaces and kind of hold your truth and do truth telling. Historically, what's happened in this country is why we are where we're at. We're a country that's obsessed with mining, brings huge amounts of profits, our exports and that sort of stuff. So the idea of standing up against this thing in the beginning was just felt like it was kind of us. But what we've been able to do is kind of build huge movements where you have every fossil fuel fight that you have across this country where people are trying to stop it is led by First Nations people. There's a lot of pride I think that I have in, you know, we've seen things like the massive bushfires that ripped through about three years ago and stuff like that. And for people to be coming out of that, we were talking about protecting country and the role of land management. And you would measure it, you would see different politicians who agree with us, First Nations politicians repeating what we said, progressive media repeating the things that we're saying. But to come out of a national crisis like that and have people demanding that we go back to or give more access to Indigenous land practices as a way to to stop these types of, you know, massive bushfires and that we've got it wrong in terms of conservation was incredible. And it was just funny, like, just messaging this thing with a bunch of young seed mob and they were messaging like, People are saying what we've been saying for years and it's incredible to see how that changed and how you could popularize those conversations. Have you followed Sunrise Movement in the United States and how they've changed some of the dialogue over here? Yeah, I've seen a bit of what they've been doing. You know, I think they had an incredible impact also around, I think for young people getting involved in electoral politics, I know it's different because it feels like there's an election all the time in the US, but it's typically something that young people don't get involved in, but they should. The situation that you described where existing environmental organizations and other organizations start out being pretty resistant to newcomers, maybe jealous of funding, maybe feeling more conservative about tactics, that seems to me like a very common reaction that I've observed in in lots of spaces, even for-profit spaces. What happened over time? The pattern I often see is after you're there a while, people are like, okay, these folks are around. We'll incorporate them into our new reality and we'll start to work with them when it makes sense. Did you experience a change from organizations like that that were resistant to you in the beginning or to continue on through your tenure there? I feel like it was begrudgingly. (laughs) We had a really big focus on organizing, building power, bringing our communities into a space where they didn't have access to. And so we were really dogged about that. And then when I guess the bigger NGOs, I think we got bigger in support. We started taking over what will probably be usually their spoken moments across the media because I feel like we were better communicators. But we had something new to say and we had a different way to say it. And so it sounded different, I guess, met where we were at more in terms of the climate movement, even globally, where you had a bunch of different young people doing some really great stuff. We were strategic in the campaigns that we took on. 
we weren't just willing to be like the, I guess, the tokenized Indigenous activists that jumped on board a campaign. We wanted to run our own campaigns and use our resources where we felt like they weren't going. So I think it was really good for us because we could demonstrate that this national campaign over here was our campaign. We worked in a way where the people who supported us across the movement or who thought it was exciting that we were going to be there, they became champions of the organisation. And the people that didn't want us there either had to make space for us because some of those old NGOs really are stagnant in their membership growth and in the age of their membership. Also, some of their members would end up becoming our members and supporting us. So like they'd be doing events and that sort of stuff and their leaders would be like, oh, we need to get seed in here. Seed is so great. And like it would annoy them so much. But there was so much resistance. We also came up around the time when we started the organisation about 10 years ago there was another young organisation that started at the same time called Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance who were way more radical than us. And basically back in history now, we kind of started in the same week. And it's funny, like the inception of these two organisations that have really changed the political landscape in Australia and the way that we protest. But when we first started, we're like, wait, are we enemies? You know, it took us a long time to figure out that actually we're on the same page and that we're doing different things. And we're really like a tight crew now, but in the first instance, it's just kind of incredible to see that those two youth organisations really started at the same time. And I get so much energy because I also now see there are such an influx within the environment space of Indigenous people being like, we're not going to go to the NGOs to like fund our campaign or support our campaign. We'll just do it ourselves. And then you kind of have the environment movement kind of come out trying to, I guess, wrangle them in or pull them in close. And they're like, no, no, we're fine. We'll find our own way here. So it's created a different space, which is also cool. I think that people don't like that overall, but from things that they say. When did you first become aware of GetUp? So I actually was leaving Seed and <laughs> I knew about GetUp. I had volunteered with GetUp because GetUp is not a charity. And so GetUp as an organization can tell people how to vote with our electorals in Australia. We're a not-for-profit. And so I knew about GetUp. It's pretty usual that we would campaign with GetUp on election days, but honestly, I didn't always have a very good view of it. I thought it was a really big, really white organization. I knew it had a lot of money and those types of things. I didn't like it when I was younger because I I felt like it's kind of this big organization that just comes in and claims everybody else's work. When I left Seed, I really was looking at what I was going to do. When you go through building an organization, I think I had so much more confidence that around entrepreneurship and that I could do the work that I wanted to do and just get, you know, small donations to back in the work that I want to do. And I really wanted to upskill a bunch of people that were working on their own campaigns and have some ability to build their capacity as well and, and help build their campaigns up. So when I left, I had no plan to go anywhere. I was just going to take a break and do that. And if I got paid, I got paid. I was kind of at my farewell and there was someone there who was working at GetUp and they're like, oh, what are you doing next? Because I didn't really tell people I was leaving. And I had said like, I don't have a plan. They're like, would you come to get up? And I was like, no. (laughs) Like, just have some conversations with the team. And so, you know, we had, I think I was was leaving, I went for a a trip to the US and I was talking to the human rights director at GetUp and I was like, there's no way I'm coming to this organisation. So I wasn't rude to him, but I had like a million questions for him. Like, why don't you work on First Nations issue? What do you do with all your money? All these different types of things. And he just was like, well, we're not, First Nations people, so we don't want to feel like we're coming in proposing solutions and as a white organisation. But then he talked to me about, you know, the incredible resource in the organisation. In terms of coming on board, they offered me a role. Um, it was basically like, you can come here and you could do whatever you wanted. And I was like, what? 
I talked to an Uncle Sam Watson. He passed away a couple of years ago. He's a big activist here in Mianjin. And he said to me, I said, they want me to go to get up places really wide. I was going to do this other thing. And he was like, you know what, Riss? How many other blackfellas are going to get the opportunity to go to this organisation? Like when do we go to organisations and there is an agenda set? It's like if it doesn't work, it doesn't work, but you should try it. And so that was, I guess, my my reason for starting at GetUp was just like I gave myself 18 months. If this doesn't work, I'm leaving. And almost to the day of the 18 months, they approved the work that I wanted to do. So that's why I'm still here. How does GetUp fit into the politics of Australia, would you say, these days? GAP is bigger than our political parties in terms of its membership. And our members, they lean more progressive, but they obviously, they vote right across the political spectrum. I know that you have like two-party preference as well in the US, but we have a lot more minor parties and independents here as well. And so federally, GetUp has been responsible for wiping governments out in terms of the way that they campaign in getting rid of like people who are hard right. At the last election, we seen the Conservative Party, like the moderate Conservatives actually move away from that party and they got replaced with a new kind of Conservative Party in terms of the balance of power who are Conservative in a lot of different ways, but they support action on climate and those types of things and, and some human rights stuff as well. They don't agree with all the politics that we have, but in terms of the way that it has shifted our parliament, we have a much more progressive parliament and, you know, we have the Conservative Party really kind of needing to rethink who is their base, who do they appeal to and that sort of stuff. So they're very small at the moment. I also think like GetUp has run incredible campaigns over the years, you know, I know that you have it now, but indefinite detention of refugees and asylum seekers started over in Australia and we campaigned against that for a long time and, you know, we were able to work to change laws in Australia under a conservative government to make sure that we could evacuate those detention centres and it was actually not a minister like the Minister for Home Affairs that made those decisions that doctors would make the decision over who needed to be removed from them and so that was the way that we were able to evacuate so many people from Manus and Nauru. So they've run really incredible campaigns. Get Up as an organisation is also willing to take on the progressive side of politics and, and really talk about what needs to happen and has a lot of power and has a lot of access into our parliaments and our governments, but our power is really outside. It's our numbers. It's the people that campaign with us. Get Up is really focused on that model of outside power. So in the Australian landscape, we are a big player. Murdoch comes after us all the time and, you know, we're constantly fighting back against government inquiries, trying to get us as an associated entity of a progressive party, but we're independent and we've we've taken on that challenge many times in those federal inquiries. But obviously we make a big impact. We've pushed sitting prime ministers out of their seats and stuff like that, which has been incredible. You mentioned Murdoch. I think he's one of the plagues that we share in common. We have the Fox News part of Murdoch, and that's not the only media property, but it's the big one here. What has been the impact of Murdoch-run media in Australia? I know you have a lot of cable media and that sort of stuff in the US, but a lot of independent and different types of media ownership. In Australia, 70% of our media is owned by Rupert Murdoch. So it is a big problem (laughs) that all of our national stories and that sort of stuff and even our free-to-air TV channels, some of them are owned by Rupert Murdoch as well. So we have a really big issue with media freedom and it has a huge impact on who gets elected into our parliaments. He's wiped out many even conservative leaders that didn't agree with him, the, the ones that were more moderate. You know, he's a complete climate denier. 
but also in the way that, you know, they've backed, they're so insidious in Australia. They own different properties. Like if you want to rent a house, the only website that people go to is real estate, this real estate website, which is owned by Murdoch. So they're everywhere over here. And I know he's a US citizen and I feel like I wish he would just stay in the US, but we really, in the way that he comments and he cites a bunch of racism, you look at the the media, everything that happens in the US that blows up into kind of big culture wars, we will receive on our doorstep in a matter of weeks. Voter fraud and all this it doesn't happen in Australia, but we get it in the media and people talking about it because it's coming out of the Murdoch media and things like that. So you always have to kind of keep a keen eye on what's happening in the US because in some way that narrative will come here and we'll try to divide people here. I think it's very different, but like Australians have a very big BS meter around different things, but people absolutely around COVID, you know, you'd wake up to hashtags that were coming out of the Murdoch media, like Save Australia and stuff like that and be like, calm down, America, what is going on here? Like the way people would talk about what's happening is pretty insane. It's really messed up our country and I think, had a big impact in Great Britain also. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a big old mess. You mentioned that about 18 months into your time at GetUp, they approved what you wanted to do. What did you want to do? Take a bunch of their resourcing and set up campaigning in First Nations communities. I guess my model is a is an organizing-led model, you know, that so many people use, but Get up as an organization would be, you know, the smart people that propose all the campaigns and the policy. And I was like, what if we just work with communities and work out what they want to do? And then those are the campaigns that we work on. And they're like, no. <laughs> so it took a long time. Actually, what happened was we ran an election campaign in 2019 and I refused to work on that election campaign. So they let me, you know, they gave me a minuscule amount of money and said, go over and and I was like, I'm going to work with Aboriginal communities in the Northern Territory. I've got some relationships there and we'll work out our own election campaign, see what the communities want to campaign on. And Get Up failed in their election campaign. And so the only thing they had to talk about was our piece of work that was very successful. It, it was in terms of the way that I wanted to work, also taking a chance in hiring First Nations young people who weren't campaigners, who didn't have the type of specialist skill sets that I think get consolidated in big NGOs and that sort of stuff and just being like we have a different way of doing this they fundamentally didn't understand culturally what we were trying to do it wasn't just approved it was a lot of fighting over what we were trying to get and also I think at that stage I was asking for this thing and then doing it anyways but I was also hitting all my targets and fundraising and acquisition targets so they couldn't do anything about it really so I was kind of like put the proposal to them I was like either we do this or I don't want to be here, it's fine, but you make the decision kind of thing. And they were like, okay. At that time, GetUp's brand had also changed so much in terms of the political landscape and there was so much goodwill for the campaigns that we were doing. So you had executive members out and there were people like, this is the best campaign that you're running right now. I really love it and that sort of stuff. So they were hearing that stuff from regular people and people within the movement as well. So they didn't really have a choice. You kind of moved up within the organization over time in title and responsibility and clearly now to being the chief executive officer. Tell me a little bit about the story there. What happened internally as you got new and different roles? There was a bunch of turmoil in the organization around we'd failed at the last election. So it felt like going into this most recent election that all eyes were on us. We had like 
years of bashing from Murdoch inquiries and that sort of stuff coming out of the 2019 election. So people were really nervous and so that manifested in a bunch of ways within the organisation and blew up within union spaces in the organisation. So it kind of became untenable, the trajectory they were going in. And so what the board did was like, hey, Riss, here's the election campaign. Can you do something with it? You know, it's just like when everything goes wrong, just hand it over to a black woman. But that's what it felt like. But standing in that space and doing that campaigning, we ran a really incredible national election campaign around frontline communities who were really missing out because of the conservative government. We'd had massive floods, record floods, and people for the first time being on the receiving end of the climate crisis. And so turning it into a narrative, which is more about people and communities, and turning that into like a massive national story and this tidal wave of support to remove the, the sitting prime minister, that he wasn't doing enough and that he didn't care about climate change and all the bad decisions he was making. So that was really good. And I think stepping into that leadership, it was my time to move on from GetUp. Taking on that role was really about stepping out of the First Nations work that I was doing and, and stepping in other young people to lead that space. So that was what my original thinking was. And then when I got through the election campaign, my dad also passed away during the election campaign. So it was kind of this moment of like, what do I want to do next? I knew under a Labor government, under the commitments that we had at a state and federal level around treaty that actually it's kind of the same thing what Uncle Sam had said to me before, like what other black woman would have the opportunity to step into this role at such a pivotal moment? We're going to go to a referendum this year. Millions of people are going to vote on a referendum question, but fundamentally that that referendum will be about us and what people think about us. And so for me, the ability to take over the organisation in such a pivotal moment that could create a decade of change for our communities. I was nervous about it, but I also felt like it was the right thing to do at the time. So I was like, I'm going to put in my application in my interviews, I was like, here are all the things that I would want to transition this organisation into and kind of just leave it all out there and just like, this is what I want to do. I want to transform this organisation. I don't think NGOs have deserved to exist. I think that they should be relevant. We've been around for almost almost 20 years and I just feel like we're becoming a bit stale and just a bit part of the, the landscape. So I feel like there's there's room to bet the house on different strategies and do things that are new. And so, yeah, I put that in and I was just like, this is what I want. And I felt really confident that if I didn't get it, then that was fine. I knew what I wanted to do and I'd move on somewhere else, but ended up getting the gig. And it's been very different stepping into leadership. It's not the same thing as running Indigenous organisations or working in youth organisations. It's been a good challenge in some ways. And in some ways, it's in the roles that I've played, even into the political decisions around what this referendum will be like and having a lot of power of get up to be forcing the government to not water down what they had promised voters and those types of things and holding that accountability has been really important. It is super common for organizations to reach a level of stale, especially when they've had success. They run out of ideas or they've achieved what they wanted to do, but there's a lot of ways that can happen just with people aging that are in leadership or lots of different things can happen. It sounds like you provided a kind of a conviction about direction that was absent, perhaps, among others. And that was like something for board or other leadership to seize onto. Do you see it that way? Or what else was it about you that you've moved from starting your own originally quite small organization to now running kind of a powerhouse in 
Australian politics. Yeah, I feel like I didn't think about it too much. I was actually over in the US again when I ended up putting my application in. I hadn't made up my mind about putting it in, so it was like literally I put my application in late because I was on US time. I think I had two thoughts in my head around you always have this kind of doubt as a woman stepping into leadership, like is this a progressive organisation, is this just going to be really tokenistic? Do they really believe in the things that I want to do? I definitely had that in the back of my mind. I think actually friends have said this better to me, that like the organisation needed me more than I needed them. I knew that I was a leader within the progressive spaces in Australia and activist spaces, but to me that didn't mean a lot. Like I really care about the impact that we're having and so the idea of it, the organisation being stale and that being critique that I held all of my leadership is really mostly about, well, these are the things that we need to do to change. Just constantly thinking about how do we adapt? How do we change? What is the work we need to do internally to do this thing? And I think that's as an Indigenous woman thinking about things more holistically is that's the way that we think it's cultural. And so I think I bring different leadership qualities to the organisation. Across the NGO movement in Australia, there aren't any other Indigenous people leading. It's insane. It's 2023. I felt this thing like, well, it's been past the right time to do it. It felt like if I was going to take on the leadership, I really felt like they wanted me to take it on. But also it was just like, is this really going to be the organisation that's going to let me grow and change the organisation? Or am I going to be tokenised and stuck in this organisation? So that was my mind. In the way that I think about it now and the skills that I bring to the role, I think it was actually a really critical point. I was talking to one of my friends and he was saying like, this is like, in the way that we think about it, it's just like, I think some things you have, like our ancestors really call us to, to step into these roles and to step into the, at the right time. And he was like, I just feel that about you. Like you're here, you're doing these things, you're leading a national organisation while they're putting this referendum question up and a lot of our communities are saying no to it. And it's so important to have an Indigenous woman there saying, well, why are they saying no? Because we don't trust governments. Governments don't deliver the things. Some of the policies have been very harmful, but also there's power in the right of refusal as well. People are asking for more. And so in that and become a national spokes on this thing that is really just explaining what our communities are saying and translating that, I feel. And I didn't think about that going into it, but. I've observed that there's certain people who come out of less privileged backgrounds in whatever space they originate who remain in touch with a kind of a reality on the ground that more privileged people maybe have lost touch with over generations of prospering or whatever softer lives sometimes lead to. Do you think that's true? And how do you stay in touch with the world that you came from? You know, it's the, I 100% believe this. I think that People talk about lived experience, but, you know, the reality is like I grew up in, you know, government housing, like I grew up very poor, you know, I have brothers who have been, you know, my dad, my brothers and that sort of stuff, you know, been incarcerated and my, some of my brothers are still incarcerated. I grew up with two two brothers, my brother just older than me with a disability and my brother who's younger with me, he has... um. Since he was very young, he, like he had schizophrenia. It's really rare for the kids to have schizophrenia, but he he did. And so he's he's been in an institution for almost a, over a decade now. And so all these things that you deal with on a personal level, but also when we're talking about going into the election, the you know in Lismore, New South Wales, our community was wiped out by the largest flood on record. 
in February last year. And then a month later, there was another record-breaking flood that happened in that community again. You know, my brothers and sisters, my dad lost everything. And Lismore in New South Wales is a huge First Nations population, but it's also, you know, what we talk call like it's it's the lowest socioeconomic area in New South Wales. And so, you know, even with our Aboriginal housing, we lost all of our Aboriginal housing that our co-op had bought over many, many years. So many people are homeless. They're still living in pods and tents and that sort of stuff now. And there's no movement from the government to rebuild these things. But that's what it's like growing up in an area like that where people don't have infrastructure and insurances and those types of things. You know, that people still remain on country, but it's really hard right now. And so your pay rate can change, but we can talk about class warfare, but if this is where your family still remains, it's where you're going to remain. I don't think it's possible to be like, okay, like literally I get paid more than I've ever been paid now, but also I have a brother and a sister who have lost work through lots of mental health stuff and that sort of stuff, but also support your families and stuff like that. So really in working in an organisation where it's funny, there's so many people that have like, you know, wanted to be campaigners their whole life. I don't feel like it was a choice to be a campaigner. It was something that I was, you know, brought along to very young. And, you know, people ask me like, how do you get this organiser job? I'm like, I think that I always had done it as a young person and through my family and then somehow I ended up getting paid for it. So there's a different approach to coming into the organisation where there's people that are hired internally who have done like, you know, international development at university and stuff like that. And very much part of their identity is being this progressive campaigner. These are the people that have gone to like sandstone universities in Australia, they're some of the most expensive universities. It's wild to me, like, you know, does there's people that are working in our admin that live, you know, in in, you know, these incredible beach towns in Byron Bay with movie stars living close to them. Like, that's not how I grew up. And it's it's wild that you you move in these organizations and that was like my first confrontation even at seed of like, oh my gosh, there's people with money here. Like it's weird because it's not our organizations, right? Yeah. It's one thing to have this conviction that you bring to this and kind of the connectedness to knowledge about injustice and things like that. It's another thing to take an organization and manage it and lead it in the direction that you want to. And that requires a wholly different skill set. How has that been for you so far? What are you finding difficult? What are you able to accomplish? What are the challenges? I have a lot of resilience and personal qualities that I bring to the role, but it's really hard as a First Nations woman to step into a leadership role. Like, first of all, the scaffolding around me is, is, is you know, it ha- it's getting better now, but I've had to be really proactive in, in reaching out to people and trying to find people. And knowing that I needed people as well was really hard. I'll be straight about this, but even in setting relationships with my board and, and those types of things, there are things that, you know, you receive as, as a woman in, in charge is like, first of all, very paternalistic and also very racist. And so dealing with that at the, an executive level when you technically have the most power is like mind bending, but also who do you raise those complaints with? So there are so many inbuilt systems internally that are incredibly tough to deal with, but also to name things as being racism or name things as being sexist and those types of things. And I didn't do that initially. I was really frustrated and I think I internalised a lot of things of like, what am I doing wrong? I'm trying to work this thing out. 
I I think I it the first time ever in my career, like moving over the last six months, I think I had like a two month period where I just really doubted myself. And I don't think I've ever done that before. I've been like really confident in my conviction and what I was trying to achieve. And I'm really hard worker, but I was just like, I'm I'm not cut out for this. I can't do this. I don't know how to do these things. What it was is just naming, first of all, people don't like when people of colour, black people move into leadership roles because it's different and it feels different. It's fine on paper, but when when culturally you want to change things within an organisation, people are actually resistant to change, and, and I understand that in, in terms of the things that you're trying to do. The idea that we don't have a North Star or a strategy internally in the organisation is okay for people because it allows people to do whatever they want to do. So the point that you want to kind of corral people or get buy-in to a different strategy, there's a lot of resistance that you have there. And so, you know, trying to work people through that and moving people through and then you have people that are still resisting and like digging their heels in and that's about they just don't want to get on board. And so that's really hard as well because when you move from within the organisation and you're a campaigner that's winning a bunch of campaigns, you have a whole different level of like not like capital in the organization, but people see you differently, right? I was just there doing my work. I was winning a lot of things, had a lot of respect in a staff team. When you step into that leadership role, that totally changes. I haven't changed, but the way that people see you and view you and the power that you have to make decisions is very different. One of the things I also experienced really early stepping in is that it is your role as a leader to also make hard decisions And one of the things that I found from moving, you know, obviously I have a big value around organising, is that where there were decisions that people didn't like, whether it was like financial and those types of things, for a bunch of really uh, important reasons, because our revenue dropped significantly when a progressive government got in our dropped over 80%. So this is a significant financial challenge that was in the organisation when I was taking over, which I inherited. People then would come back to you and say, you need to consult more on this decision. And then, you know, get kind of stuck in this going around in circles. And then I actually, wait, my job is to make the decision here. But there was just different pressures. And I was there when obviously the last executive officer was in there, never would receive the type of feedback. I know speaking to him, he didn't receive the type of feedback that I got. It's very gendered in a lot of different ways. And then different people saying, you know, why things wouldn't work culturally and the way that that's coded as people are uncomfortable with the different cultural elements that I bring into the organisation as well. So it's been a challenge. It's not something that I'm running away from, but it's it kind of felt like a pile on just like, you know, how do you move in this space? And some people will really embrace you moving into the organisation and some people are like, well, wait, if you move into power, then I lose power. And so moving through that took a lot of time as well. What do you want GetUp to be? as it goes forward under your leadership? I think GetUp needs to be an organisation that services the issues that people care about in this country and actually creates change on them. Under a progressive government in Australia, it's very different in the US, but looking at what are the reforms that we can make. I know we have a lot of social, like giving people who are on income support and that sort of stuff an ability to you know lift above the poverty line and those types of things. I think this is really important. So I want to go back to impact and making sure that we know the people who we are making impact for as well and that they are represented in the campaigns that we do, in the way that we make decisions on the campaigns that we do because GetUp is a big a big resource in the Australian political landscape and so how we use that, I think it's just like accountability as well. 
but also, you know, I don't think necessarily the organization needs to grow in terms of like its number or the money that it brings in. But I do think that it does need to diversify. And I don't mean diversification in terms of just like, you know, what does our membership look like? But the way that we approach different issues and those types of things. And I think like things like diversity and intersectionality get thrown around in progressive movements and they probably don't mean what people say they mean. But we get stuck on doing things because this is what members who fund the organisation want us to work on. I think we need to do the work in the organisation to get those members to fund the things that actually people who can't fund the organisation need us to work on too. And that takes time. You can do it and we've demonstrated that you can do it, but it's harder and I think we need to know who the organisation is working for. We mentioned early on in this conversation that it's that you have sister sort of organisations around the world that are online progressive campaigning type organizations. Are you taking ideas from abroad? Are other people listening to what you guys are doing in Australia? What's the feedback among these organizations as you see it? I think the network of global organizations is really important to understand because so much of how we campaign now, you know, I was talking about Murdoch before, how things and cultural break out in the US, you know, and then through social media and the Murdoch platforms find their way here and they become our national fights as well. And so globalization is something that we're really dealing with in a digital age. And I think also when we talk about, you know, consumerism, neoliberalism, these are big issues. And what we need to do is is kind of not just even with dealing with climate change, we need to understand our impact on the world as well that we're having, you know, we're talking about the way that we do mining and, and those types of things. But in the organizations and having that alliance. If it's just kind of an Australian alliance of different organisations and it's like these organisations all care about the same issue or these organisations are all the big kids in the room and, and you know they're the ones getting together and sharing their resources. But I think when you have global organisations sharing not just their resources but their technology, what I love about our, our network is that we create open platforms that can be open source. And what we want to do is, you know, be able to spread progressive campaigning and human rights campaigning globally. And so we want to make our platforms open so the general public can use them and create tech platforms for good. So there's a lot of work that we do in terms of bringing our tech developers together globally and putting their heads together and and building brilliant tools. But also there's a lot of lessons learned we're seen as an organisation that is really good at electoral campaigning. And so for some of the smaller organisations, those lessons are really important. But also, I think similarly, there are smaller organisations who we can't actually name, but they're not named partners publicly because if they were named as political campaigners, their lives would be at risk. And some of the things that the smaller organisations do are so incredibly brave in the way that they, you know, fight back against authoritarian governments. And I think that those things and that reality is really important because, you know, you see what's happening in the US and, you know, it feels like that's where the US is sliding into and it's an incredible democracy, but how long can you hold it for? It feels so partisan and and tribal right now and that energy and the opposition between people is kind of spreading throughout the world and just like how do we bring people together and how do we do values-based campaigning in this political climate? You learn that from our global sister organizations as well and being in conversation at every level of the organization. I mean, you mentioned the the polarization here in the United States and and you know the threat of authoritarianism that is all around in different places 
on the globe right now. I'm curious how you from Australia viewed the rise of Trump and Trumpism and the takeover of the Republican Party in the United States by people who've adopted a lot of those principles. How, how do you see that from, from where you are? It's very scary to watch. <laughs> it, um... It's very scary from here, I'll tell you that. It's very like I feel like I started getting really like watching US politics because I care about politics, but watching US, but watching or getting involved in different types of politics here outside of my work felt like I was never switching off. And so I started to really pay attention to US politics in the early 2000s and especially around the Iraq war and stuff like that and what was happening because that was a, a whole mess that we all got into. In terms of Trump, it just felt like I was in the US, I think it was like 2015, and I remember traveling throughout the South and then coming back and being like, Trump is getting elected, and everyone was like, no, it's Hillary, and I'm like, no, all your dreams are going to get crushed. Like so much of the polarization and the way that people are talking, it's like it's kind of scary that this is an election. People take it really seriously. It feels like a warfare Like when people are talking about politics in the US. I find it really scary. But I think that, you know, Trump has had such a global impact. Like when he got elected, we had so many coal and gas, you know, campaigns like really on the ropes. He got elected and those things just went into supercharged. All the global markets changed. But I think even conversationally, there was a bunch of anti-trans rallies in in capital cities in Melbourne. They had, you know, a bunch of neo-Nazis doing Nazi salutes and that sort of stuff in a state, they're bringing in legislation this week to ban the Nazi salute. But it feels like those things didn't happen publicly before Trump. He changed the conversation and he changed what was possible. And that is happening everywhere. You know, the idea, and it, it affects us in a way that, you know, we, where we see like the Black Lives Matter movement and kind of the conservative pushback against them or even the media rhetoric around, you know, criminalization and, you know, rioters and all these types of things. They say the same things that they do about black people in the US, about us as First Nations people here in Australia. And you're like, that's not true. And it's also not true of us. But, you know, it, it's it's incredible the influence that he has had, not for the better. And I feel like globally, if he gets reelected, I just feel like we've just gone, we went so, we went so far back in our conservative politics when he got elected because he just enabled so much. I think some of the, the tactics that people run in US elections are crazy and you know, I've seen the the last you know, backed a bunch of Trump candidates in the midterms and stuff like that. And I was like, well, this is risky, like platforming these people. And like, should you platform these people? Because you're really platforming some really scary rhetoric and stuff like that as well. There are people that are able to publicly express what is the worst of us. And and that's changed. So I don't know how we come back from that, but we need to. It's a nightmare. I wonder from afar, do you see an antidote? Like what would you advise progressive campaigners here in the United States? What is the messages? What are the sorts of people? What's the kind of leadership that's required to combat that? I mean, for some reason, this right-wing authoritarianism has some kind of appeal, whether it's played through a racial lens or a gender lens or an economic lens or religious. I mean, there's so many different ways in which they're fighting a culture war here and similar analogs are happening around the world. What do you think ought to be done? This rhetoric really exploits, I think, how hard people are doing, like within their personal lives. You know, you look at 
our economy is not as bad in, in the same way, but in, in the way that, you know, people are working three jobs, people really feel like their lives are hard right now. I think people are, are really able to exploit that. I feel like we need to do better at how we campaign and connect on a values base and not use kind of us and them rhetoric when it comes to regular people because we've lost the ability to have a conversation, right? It's all very much about political politics and kind of point scoring around my facts, your facts, and those, and, in, and in the end, facts don't matter. I feel like in the way that we campaign, we need to step forward more with our values and the aspirations that we have and where we want to be in a positive way. That doesn't mean it has to be like all sunshine and roses and those types of things, but in a way that we can do better. And I think we need to also be better at naming the things that create the systems that people are kind of the victims of, whether that is talking about capitalism and why the system isn't working for us and why it isn't working for you. Like don't talk to regular people about neoliberalism and socialism, those types, like break it down for them. And that's one of the things that I always say around how we campaign, like what you're talking about needs to make sense to people in their everyday lives. And I think we need to get better at that. But also the way that we campaign needs to change. And I think the way that we resource our movements and making sure that we are spending the resources in organising communities that we don't organise because they're further away or because it would cost more money or because we don't have organisers there, then go there and meet with people and build the capacity of organisers in those places. I think there are a lot of places in our world and you know in regional communities that really feel forgotten about and those people are, it feels like they're ripe for being you know, misled into these movements and feeling like someone is finally representing them and just like, you know, for progressive campaigners, you need to reach to those people as well. It's not just about being smart, knowing the things. I actually do believe that some of the things that Trump says around political elites, I think it, there is a class of political elites in this world and who really do leave regular people behind and we need to do better around who we're speaking for and passing the mic to different people and elevating them in the work that we do and the work that we campaign, which is just longer, deeper work, but we've got to do it because it's, it's kind of feels like we need to save our democracy in a bunch of ways. It's hard to measure it exactly, but there does seem to be efforts from Russia and China and the big authoritarian countries that have very different systems of government and much more control over public opinion to turn Western democracies, other democracies, in their direction. Are you experiencing that in Australia? Do you see that as a significant or not very significant element? We do, but it feels like there's a lot of warmongering happening at the moment. Um, and so, you know... It's hard to point at them and and not worry that that plays into polarizing the world and putting us at war with them. There's a big debate happening in Australia at the moment because our prime minister was over in the US in San Diego with Joe Biden. And so the AUKUS agreement, you know, $300 billion that we're going to pay for these nuclear subs. A lot of Australians are like, why are we buying nuclear submarines? There's a lot of propaganda around like, you know, what China might do to us. I'm like, China you know, the conversation here is like China relies on Australia's mineral resources. They've never threatened us. But the idea that there's so much paranoia right now, first of all, these submarines can't even, you know, come around close to our coast because it's too shallow. But also the idea that China is going to come for us at some point, like China's minding its own business, really. I know they do a lot of stuff in terms of cyber things and, and those types of things. 
you know, our prime minister went out and said, you know, they need to be investigated for the Wuhan lab leaks and stuff like that. And it turned into a massive trade war between us. And it's like, I'm not saying that those things aren't important or whatever, but it's just like, why are you creating these aggressions and, and these type of things? It's also driven by, you know, the war in Ukraine, I think is, is, is really, really sad, but it also feels like in the way that People talk about what support they get, talk about even NATO and those types of things is really down to not just political preference, like whether you're pro-war or de-escalation and those types of things, but like what you think about the the phone call that Trump had with Zelensky and stuff, like it's, it's just crazy. Like there's people dying. Why are you talking about world leaders? Not that I support war efforts. I feel nervous about all of it and what, what we're moving into because of Putin, you know, and his ability to kind of, you know, be a global threat. Obviously, if, if Russia and, and China did end up coming together and then something would be terrifying, but I don't know what we can do about it, you know. Well, and then you get, you know, potentially China moving into Taiwan and Russia moving into other countries in Eastern Europe like they had before. And it's hard not to look at that as a real threat. And it's also and, such a recent history that that's how it was. Yes. We're going back many decades. So I feel like forget that these things can really happen yes one of the things that i can't help but wonder about in just talking to you for this amount of time is elected office for you have you thought about running for prime minister or the equivalent is that seem like something that could be in your future i used to think when i was like much younger not that i would run for elected office, but I thought, you know, I really cared about politics. And, you know, it's very recent history that we have First Nations represent, like 10 years ago, we didn't have any First Nations people in our parliaments elected at a federal level, which is insane. But so those type of changes, or just over 10 years ago, those type of changes are really important. Uh, we're seeing more people elected than ever in the last federal election. I really care about representation. I don't know if that's the thing that I want. I feel like I don't look too far ahead in, in terms of what is my career, but I care deeply about politics. I work a lot in in the work that I do trying to get other people to run for elected office, even if it's in the local councils. I think it's really important to have people who come from the communities and live the type of lifestyles that people experience in those places. There's a lot of people who are career politicians and I don't think that's a good thing. I'm not saying that it's like never say never, but it's not something that's within my focus, but I'm really focused on how do we build out and how do we campaign for more representative structures and, and change our democratic institutions to be more representative and, and to give more people access. Those are the things I care about. I want to campaign for seats in parliament for First Nations people. That's what I'm really open to doing. And also campaigning for Australia to be a republic because we don't need King Charles to be our head of state. So those things are what I'm excited about. Is there a question I should have asked you that I haven't? I don't know. Yeah, I can't think of anything. Well, it's been super to have a chance to talk to you. I honor the work that you do out there and glad that you're fighting the fight. Anything else you want to say? I think there's so much work that we can do bringing people into the campaigns and the the ability to understand how you can make change, I think, is so important for people that are dealing with different systems of oppression and that sort of stuff across the world. It feels like it's still something they're trying to justify why we do it uh, and why it matters and why it should be funded. Not just that everyone should have paid roles, but people should be more people should be able to get involved and the infrastructure needs to be there. 
the transition that we make in the organisation that I'm working for at GetUp, I, I can name a hundred different organisations within the political spectrum that really need to shift the way that they work and think about their power and who their power is for. And so those are the things that I'm interested on a in an Australian kind of landscape in having those conversations and pushing those people. But I think globally we need to think about it because there are a lot of people feeling like right now they are being left behind and there isn't a place that represents them or speaks for them. Thank you much. That was Larissa. She is at getup.org.au. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.